Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Secret Birds HQ podcast. And this is podcast episode number 28. And today we are joined by Miss Anne Davis. Hello, Anne. Hi, Joanne. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Anne. And Anne is based in Colombia, in South America. And Anne, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in terms of your business? Sure. Yeah, I guess I'd describe myself as um, a social entrepreneur. Um, I, I'll talk a little bit about my business, um, which I founded just a short while ago, about a year and a half ago. Um, and you mentioned that I, I was based in Colombia. That's true. I'm actually um, based not just in Colombia, but from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and then also I work in Thailand and uh, Portugal for my business. Um, so I'm from Milwaukee. And I guess, Joanne, should I just kind of tell you my story, my background? Yes, please. Great. Um, so I grew up in Wisconsin, um, in a suburb of Milwaukee, and not very diverse. Um, it was somewhat of a bubble. So going to college, I really, um, that was my goal was to um, get out of the Midwest and um, at least go somewhere else within the United States. So I headed to New Orleans uh, for university. In, the, in southern United States. Um, and there I had the opportunity to really broaden my horizons. Um, it was just shortly after Hurricane Katrina um, that I arrived to, to New Orleans. Um, so there was a lot of opportunity um, for assisting with re rebuilding the city, both physically and I think just, you know, an emotional rebuild and reboot of mm -hmm. the city of New Orleans. I remember. Um, even two years after the hurricane um, gutting houses where there was still uh, furniture and um, items from the family that were left and covered in black mold. Um, and it was somewhat of an eye-opening experience to, to be living in a city like New Orleans, um, which is so segregated. Um, you see it day to day, but by, um, I mean, where my university was located was just a few blocks from a very low-income neighborhood. And that's generally how the city's laid out. It's a patchwork um, urban layout where there's um, some very wealthy areas right next to some very low-income areas. Um, uh, so that was one of my first um, really strong interactions with uh, poverty. And... Um, through, throughout university, I had the opportunity to participate in various international development projects. So I lived in Venezuela, in rural Venezuela, for a period of time, working with a, Venice, a small Venezuelan organization. And there, um, this was in the Gran Savana of Venezuela. Mm -hmm. um, and was able to, again, kind of see the, the issues that um, lack of resources causes. Um, the indigenous population that we worked with, the Pimon people, um, they, uh, they had been an influx of foreigners, of Latin American foreigners into their area for a period of time to 
um, work in artificial mining. However, because of the mercury pollution, it became illegal. And they were having, after um, a fair amount of money coming into the communities, nothing compared to um, money coming into the rest of the country, such as Caracas, but money that allowed them to um, modernize a bit by eating, uh, importing packaged foods, for example, um, and televisions and the mud, using televisions in the mud huts that they were living in. Um, this, that was their version of modernization. So, um, however, because the mining became illegal, they had to return to their um, traditional practices um, because they couldn't afford to import any longer. Um, so that meant hunting and farming and agriculture. Um, so just seeing, having the opportunity to see um, the different ways that people live and also interact with them person to person, not just read about, um, read about them in, uh, you know, uh, in the news. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that was why I realized I kind of um, started to have a really strong passion for travel and not just travel um, for short periods of time, but living in one place abroad and getting it to know the people and form relationships with them, learn the language, um, that sort of thing. Right. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so from there, um, I knew that doing something social and a, social impact related in a career was really important to me. Um, so that's why I joined this organization um, after university called Teach for America. Uh -huh. um, it's a somewhat of a controversial organization because they take recent um, university graduates, generally high achieving graduates, uh -huh. and they put them through a very short training program, teacher training program. And then they uh, are placed to teach um, on their own um, in some of the um, most at-risk schools in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I worked in New Orleans at age 20. I was 22, mm -hmm. um, you know, teaching uh, a class of uh, fifth graders, many of whom had um, gone, through her, gone through Hurricane Katrina um, and had a, a form of PTSD from that experience, but also the violence that took place. Um, in their communities. So it was very difficult for me um, because I was so naive. <laughs> uh, I mean, I had obviously had experiences in New Orleans and abroad uh, at that point, but um, it was a high stress situation, a high stress position. Um, so about halfway through my year, my first year of teaching, a little more than halfway through, I was on a run uh, with some friends Mm -hmm. in the city of New Orleans and I had I felt a tingle in my left foot mm -hmm. so I started kind of like hopping around and it, it, the whole uh, thing happened fairly quickly the next thing I knew I was on the ground um the this tingle had kind of turned into an electric shock that had um that shot up the left side of my body and then spread throughout my entire body. And I was, um, I ended up having a ground mal seizure. Oh. Mm -hmm. okay. um, 
So when I came to after the seizure, I just figured that I was uh, very dehydrated. It was February, but February in New Orleans, I think it was an 80 degree day, 80 degree Fahrenheit day. Um, so the ambulance came, I was rushed to the hospital. I actually felt completely fine at that point, um, but they insisted on doing um, a CAT scan. Right. Yep. And when the results of the CAT scan came back, the emergency room doctor came into the room and she had tears in her eyes. So I was, I was like, what's going on? Um, You know, I figured everything was fine. And she showed me the scan and there was a large golf ball sized lump and the top of my brain. Uh. So um, at that point, you know, especially because she was a bit panicked, I started to panic a bit. Um, and we had, I went, was transferred to the, the general hospital, um, underwent tests. Um, unfortunately, New Orleans is not known for being as organized as some of the cities in the United States, uh. um, unfortunately. And even after three days in the ICU, uh, without you know, feeling completely fine, I had very little information about what was going on. Um, so I, luckily I had, I, I'm lucky enough to have strong social capital in that my, I have friends that were in medical school and also family friends that were um, doctors and they highly recommended that I return to the Midwest and get treated um, at Mayo Clinic, which is one of the best clinics in the world, Uh um, Rochester, Minnesota. Uh And because I was also blessed to have very good health insurance um, through my public school that I was working with, I was able to go to Mayo um, and underwent um, a craniotomy there uh, which removed, which resected 92% of that lump in my brain, which I later found out, um, was anaplastic astrocytoma, which is a form of brain cancer. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then thereafter returned home to Milwaukee and had chemotherapy and radiation, uh, for the next couple of months. Um, so if you, I think if you talk to any cancer patient that goes through all that treatment, um, okay. you find that like myself, they say it's sort of somewhat of a world whirlwind. You don't really have time to process and think through like everything that you've been through until after the experience. That's generally the case. Um, so afterwards I, Um, decided to return to New Orleans for a bit and figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, And I knew that my, my story, my chapter with teaching wasn't finished. Um, So I went back into teaching for a couple of years and for three years actually in New York city and found that um, it, it wasn't right for me, but I knew that I had a passion for travel and international development. Okay from my experiences abroad. And what teaching did allow, allow me to do was travel constantly. So all my breaks, I was abroad. 
I've been to almost 50 countries um, around the world. And, you know, again, feel really lucky to have had that opportunity. Um, so at that time, some of my uh, colleagues and previous colleagues um, from jobs that I'd had in the past and friends and family were a bit envious of all the traveling I was doing. Um, and so I had begun to hear also about these co-working retreat programs that allowed, um, that allowed professionals to work remotely for their companies abroad um, for a mo one month or longer. And um, I thought this is the answer for all those people that want to travel, but they just can't because, you know, they can't get the time off of work. Um, financially, it's difficult. Um, but then I also knew that, um, you know, when you're just traveling abroad with other Americans or other, you know, um, similar people that are not from the area, you, the experience isn't quite the same. Like that experience that I had in Venezuela, I went back to that experience that I had in Venezuela and other experiences that I've had living abroad um, and knew that the most enriching times and the most, uh, the best opportunity for change in perspective and personal development is really living abroad um, and working with locals and forming relationships. So taking that co-working model, I decided to add a pro bono project piece, which brings, um, also brings social capital to these areas um, and allows professionals to use their specific professional skills to assist with the needs of local nonprofit organizations. So I founded Venture with Impact, and what we do is we bring professionals to cities abroad and set them up with accommodation, workspace, all the logistics they need to work remotely, and then match them with a pro bono project that aligns with their interests and professional skills, as well as the needs of our partner organizations. Okay. Wow, that is quite the story, Anne. <laughs> That's a little, sorry if that was a little long. No, it wasn't long at all. It was actually very important, crucial to, to people understanding, to our listeners understanding how and why this business came about. So now we know, Anne, you are the founder of Venture, um, tell us again so we can, we can hear it from you. Venture with impact exactly venture with impact and this is a company that you you already told us earlier you operate in south america as well as in southeast thailand, Asia. Portugal. so that's thailand as well mm -hmm. as in portugal so let's go back a little bit to um surviving cancer because you kind of mentioned that a little bit but how did that um change your perspective on life because the topic of today's of today's conversation is why life is too short not to have it all. So how can you tell us a bit about how that experience, I guess, brought you to where you are today, which is believing that life is actually too short not to have it all? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was, it's difficult to say lucky, but in some ways, lucky enough to have what somewhat of a near death experience with definitely um, mm -hmm. yeah and in that at just 23 years old it was um 
I could more clearly see that life isn't, you know, it doesn't, we only have a limited time on this earth. Um, and for that reason, I, I have, even with a lot of the pressures we feel as when we're young, as young professionals of um, excelling in our career, um, you know, meeting the expectations of our families, of our friend, you know, competing with other professionals mm -hmm. um, in the same field as us. Some of those pressures, I felt um, kind of a weight off of my shoulders because when, when it comes down to, um, you know, again, uh, not to be too dramatic, but a life or death in some ways, you start to think um, much more about what's important and those things don't that doesn't seem to mean quite as much. Um, so of course. it's not mm -hmm. dramatic. It's, it's, it's real life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I just really had time, took some time to reflect on what I was most passionate about, um, what was important to me. And also I think something that, we most sometimes people realize when they're a bit older is my fa how important my family was to my family and my close friends as well and how important it was to take time to spend with them and how much I wanted that time definitely and how would you define Anna having it all what does that mean to you huh I mean of course it means something different for everyone um but for me, what became important was having more time to spend with friends and family and also maintaining a healthy lifestyle so that I could um, live a long life. So changing some of the things mostly related to my emotional health. Um, I've always been pretty physically healthy, um, although I did change a few things. Um, but in terms of emotional health, like finding a job that wasn't very stressful. I mean, you don't have to, <laughs> you shouldn't have to be stressed in your career, um, even if it means, you know, not, not excelling to the, being as ambitious in your career path. I think that emotional health is much more important. Um, so it means having, and to me it meant having a really um, good work-life balance um, and having a flexible, job so that I could um, be with my family and friends more often. Mm -hmm. um, and also, of course, doing something I was really passionate about. And again, I like to acknowledge that not everybody has this opportunity. I feel very lucky. Um, but I knew I wanted to do something related to travel and working um, with, uh, you know, bringing professionals abroad to work with at-risk communities and helping in some, in some way um, integrating a social impact component into uh, my career. Right. And you said everyone defines obviously having it all differently. Now you had, um, as you mentioned, a near death experience for those of us who say aren't fortunate because I think those things are a blessing to be honest, to have mm -hmm. a near death experience. How can they go about, really trying to find out what they're supposed to be doing, almost uh, sort of what is their purpose and, and figuring that out and how do they get there? Because I think there are a lot of people who 
want to start something. They want to start a business. They're aspiring to start a business or they have some idea, but they're not, they're not sure. You know, they just, they're getting up and they're going to work every day and they're kind of in that, I guess if you want to call it the proverbial rat race of, yeah, I have my job, I go to work, yada, yada. But deep down inside, they just know mm, something's not right. This isn't for me. Now, they, they may not have the experience of, of getting cancer and having to sort of really reflect on their life, but they want, to, they want to find out what it is they're meant to do. So do you have any advice for them? How would they go about doing that? How do you think they can go about doing that? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that for me, uh, getting abroad was really important because being in my career with Teach for America and then teaching in a, a pretty, continuing to teach in a somewhat stressful, high stakes school, mm-hmm. um, that's all I was, that's all the, you know, that was the environment I was in and that's what I was, um, those are the messages I was sending myself every day in terms of, um, you know, working uh, 60 to 80 hour weeks or and doing, you know, and um, it really, again, like you said, it's, it's the rat race trying to compete to earn that next position, that um, next promotion. So yeah. getting yourself out of that environment, I think is really important because social pressure is, is pressure. Um, so I found that living abroad um, depending of course, where you are. And there, I think that the expat perspective, for example, is a bit different. I think that many ex, um, foreigners living abroad in the countries where I am, like Colombia, Portugal, and Thailand, um, oftentimes have a different perspective on life. Mm. Um, they, from what I found generally, they are much more aware of work-life balance, um, health and wellness, and many of them have come abroad because they are passionate about something and they're working on a personal project. Um, and to get there, I mean, it's difficult, but they also um, took the risk and they hustle. So, you know, people that are um, doing a, a, working a, a career or job that they're not most passionate about, but to be able to live abroad. So potentially teaching English online or um, teaching English in general or working at a cafe or bar um, so that they can, you know, that's their transition to the, the next step. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say it definitely involves taking some risks? Absolutely. Yes. Uh Um, But for me, I felt really cleansed. I I got rid of everything I owned in the United States. I travel with one, one suitcase and a backpack. That's all I own. Um, And that's all I need, honestly. Yeah. And I I think you also have to be willing to accept and embrace change. You have to be someone who is understanding of uh, sort of that things, things are that tangible things don't really mean that much. You have to be sort of just very ready to pick up and go. And like mm-hmm. you said, you sell all your things and you're just, it, you're just ready to move. You can't be too attached to things. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. You cannot. Mm-hmm. But, and then also you know, having the realization that you can always go back if if it doesn't work out, there's yeah. the, your life is, you know, your old life is still waiting for you. 
Yeah, definitely. What do you think is preventing young people, young women from having it all? As you know, our listeners are all women who are in early stage entrepreneurs operating, operating their businesses in developing economies where there are unique challenges to say the, U, the, the challenges are definitely different to say the US or the UK or Canada or whatnot. So what would you say based on your experience of working in countries like, for example, Colombia and Thailand, are some of the biggest hurdles that women have, women have in terms of um, having it all? What's mm -hmm. holding them back? Yeah. Would you say, and John, are you asking more about <clears throat> like locals that live, like Colombians and Thai people, or are you talking more about foreigners? I probably... I would say more people on the ground, the women on the ground, because I think foreigners as expats, you have a different perspective. You have a different view. You're there for a different reason, but just your everyday interactions with, with women who maybe you may be working with in, in your business or who may, maybe you employ or what have you, what would you say is their, their biggest challenge in terms of having it all or whatever mm -hmm. that means to them? Yeah, I mean, definitely in the countries where we work, oftentimes it's money related, but that's for everyone. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, in terms of um, having, uh, you know, have, being able to save uh, enough money to, like you said, have it all to be able to, for example, um, leave your job for a year to just focus on your family and raise a family. Mm -hmm. um, that's difficult. There's a lot, you know, people... Um, in Colombia and Thailand, even Portugal are hustling mm -hmm. um, every day with, um, you know, here they work six days, here in Colombia, uh, most people work six days a week. Yeah. Um, they work more hours than in the United States and many, you know, most countries in Europe, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Europeans so don't work. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I live, you know, I've lived in Europe for a very long time and obviously the, the work-life balance is very different there compared to, say, the U.S. 